0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Hello, sports fans, statistics fans, and business fans. I'd like to welcome you to Wharton Moneyball, a show that we've been doing for the last seven years. This is the podcast version here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, both professors of statistics, some combination of the three of us, and our co-host, Kate Massey, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, we obviously have been having a great format, we hope, for the last year and a half, which is the first quarter we typically talk about COVID, and so we will do so again today. Um, the next two quarters will be our Open sports segments. We'll be talking about what caught our eye in sports, and there's tons and tons of stuff going on in sports now, so we have a lot to talk about. And then in Q4 of the show today, we have one of our longtime friends. Matter of fact, we just discussed. I'm sure he's the fifth most person that's been on Morton Moneyball, and that's Neil Payne, senior writer for 538, and we'll be talking to him about baseball and basketball.
0: So, Adi and Shane, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good, I have to say. I'm uh, headed off to Yankee Stadium again tonight. I'm um, looking forward to that. So I'm into, uh hopefully, after- hopefully you'll
3: see another uh, a big Otani home run.
0: I'd love to see Otani. I don't I don't know. I, don't, I haven't checked the papers yet. Is Trout actually uh making his appearance yet? I think it's a little too early, I, but- I I haven't seen that, but let's start with COVID. We could we can talk about the Yankees yeah. and their demise all day long if we wanted,
2: <sighs> but let's let's start with COVID. So I'd usually kick us off here in the first segment. And again, for listeners that want to join in, while normally this is a call-in show, obviously we're recording this asynchronously here on Sirius XM. Um, you can reach us at moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, we take email questions that way. As a matter of fact, I think we have a few that we're going to talk about in our Q2 uh, and 3 today. So Adi, why don't you start us off? What's caught your eye on COVID?
0: Okay, so what's caught my eye on COVID is, is uh, again, in Israel. Israel is a dramatically interesting case because it, it vaccinated so early and so completely and it opened consequently very early relative to other uh, other sort of Western European countries, um, they are experiencing another, in, a, a fairly large increase in cases. So cases, much so- just to
2: be clear, just to be emphasized, cases, cases.
0: Cases, they see, and I'll, I'll make it 100% clear now, they see no increase in deaths and much more importantly, no increase in hospitalization. So, the but they are seeing a, a, a very sudden and rapid increase in cases. And just for our now, listeners, can you tell yeah. us, the data: What fraction of people
2: in Israel have received? I, let me ask. Let me ask you. Okay. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to inter- I need some specific data. The background: Did did Israel primarily use Pfizer and Moderna, not Johnson and Johnson?
0: Okay, so it's ex- basically. It, I shouldn't say it was exclusively Pfizer, but the, the vast majority of the population was used Pfizer. Okay, it so let's buy certain amount that the of, data you're going to tell
2: us relates to Pfizer. It's it Especially, relates to Pfizer. What fraction of the Let's even say eighteen plus population in Israel has been vaccinated at least has been vaccinated twice. Yeah. Um, and then how many once? Just to give us a baseline here.
0: Okay, so it's an interesting point because it's 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 over. Um, I, I believe it's over an eighteen population is about eighty percent. Okay. I mean, let's it, compare everyone
2: in the U.S. right now. We're at about forty-five percent doubly vaccinated, eighteen plus, and about sixty-six percent at least one dose. So just to baseline everybody, right? So that's
0: what, so we're a little behind in because because of the dosages. Um, Israel actually is, is, has announced that they have a large supply of vaccinations, but by the end of July they expire and they have no more coming. So. It's interestingly that the rate of vaccinations have picked up by a factor of five uh, it's from a low base. Um, but we're, what you're looking at in Israel is two populations that have been vaccination resistant, one by design. They don't vaccinate under 16 in Israel. Yep. Uh, I think they may be rethinking that um, because that is the group of the, of the I think it's the 12 through 16 year olds that have been showing up with the, the Indian variant. Or I think they call it the ba- what do they call it? the Delta, Delta variant. Delta, um, Delta these variant. Variants. Um, and it really is contagious and, and, yep. and I don't and so that they seen it now we're talking about from essentially zero cases to hundreds it's not like we're talking about anything in the in the neighborhood of 10,000 which is what they had in their at their peak. Daily, Um, but it's uh, it's it's it was sufficient cause that they actually shut down the um, the visitors from from foreign visitors into Israel just completely, um, which was a change. They were supposed to be open starting tomorrow to foreigners who wanted to come and visit Israel. They're not anymore, Um, and and they're being extra cautious. They're not seeing any rises in hospitalizations or 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 deaths, but they are seeing large number of cases. They are mostly in uh, unvaccinated people, particularly children, um, but there are lots and lots of breakthrough cases. And that
2: well, is I just want to be clear. If you look at, since just, for, just to remind our listeners here, no vaccine is 100% effective. Obviously, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Moderna were much more effective than they thought. The ratio, essentially, when they say they're 95% effective, one way to think about it is for every 20 cases you see, you would expect 19 of them to be for unvaccinated people, and one of them to be for a vaccinated
0: person. Well, well that depends on the relative size of the two the, of the base rates. Since the vaccinated people are much, much larger in proportion of the adult population, you would actually don't see that because almost you know the vast majority of people are vaccinated. So the base of people from whom Uh, that you're dealing with is smaller among the unvaccinated. So I believe it's about two to one in Israel. It's hard to say because these numbers trickle out in different, in other words, two to one unvaccinated to vaccinated. Um, And remember, vaccinated people are outnumbered unvaccinated, at least among the adults, by about uh, five to one. So you're seeing, I I think in Israel, they're seeing about 90 to 92% effectiveness in terms of preventing infection, um, it's probably much, much higher in terms of present preventing hospitalization or death, but it was sufficiently large to kind of see a change in policy and that's really what what I'm I'm recalibrating my forecast for the US. Um, I what? think that there are on what we, aspect, uh, because I think we're going we have a we have a, a, a still large fraction of our country who is either not vaccinated now and probably won't ever be vaccinated. And you that get the an example,
2: There was a, a new article related to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, People think while we may not end up with a, at least at the moment, a national pandemic again, There are, there's an article as you probably saw too. There are five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Wyoming, that have under 35% vaccination rates right now. And they're expect. and by the way, the cases and hospitalizations have gone up and hospitalizations have gone up in those areas dramatically over the last month or so. And the expectation is that will continue. And actually they may end- need to have localized shutdowns in those areas.
0: Yeah, so I actually think that that uh, those places where we have it the worst are probably the most reluctant to do any kind of shutdown, and the places that will have it the least are probably the most most interested in in shutting down. I do believe that we'll be seeing um, measures taken again in this country, even in some of the big cities, by the fall. Is the reason um, that you? Um, that's my you, forecast. Yeah, is the reason that you've changed your forecast? And by the way, since we're all Bayesians
2: here, is that we take the data, we update our prior beliefs to posterior beliefs. Is the reason you've updated your forecast, let's say even from two months ago, maybe because you didn't foresee, no one really foresaw this Delta variant, which is much more contagious. It actually, and conditional on you get it, it's a higher hospitalization rate. Is that the reason you've, uh, and maybe you believe, I'm just asking for you, it's not right or wrong to believe. Did you believe that we would possibly have more uniform and higher vaccination rates, and it's the combination of a new variant with more higher contagiousness, higher hospitalization rates, and lower than you expected vaccination
0: rates that we are where we are. Is that the rationale? So I, I definitely think it has to do with the Delta variant, which was obviously un, unpredictable. But I think the second thing is the, is the issue for which I didn't know the answer to, and I just had to guess. So if you, it's really, think about it epidemiologically. There's a very big difference between randomly giving the vaccine to 80% of the population and giving it to 80% of the population the way it actually transpired. Why? Because the way it actually transpired is there are huge pockets of this country, some by design, some by choice, that are very similar and live in similar circumstances with each other that are not vaccinated. And they see each other. And they create this homogeneous pocket of unvaccinated community whereby the the virus can can replicate and and spread. Well, this is what we talked about
2: last week. Remember, we we used the word homophily and birds of a feather flock together. That's right. If you're vaccinated,
0: probably most of the people you know are vaccinated. And if you're unvaccinated, probably most of the people you know are unvaccinated. And I I think that's true. If you ask yourselves that, I mean, this is really huge. I feel like everybody I know is vaccinated with obviously a few exceptions, but it's vast majority. And I would guess if I talk to people who are not vaccinated, um, they would say, well, most of the people that they know are not vaccinated. It's, it's a huge divergence. And what this does is that if you think about it, this gives, this allows the reproducibility number to stay high. And that's really the issue. It has to, you want to keep it below one, but if a, 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 an infected person can run into enough people that are not vaccinated, that will that'll allow them to transmit it. If 80% of the people they know are not vaccinated, I mean, are are vaccinated? It, it, it'll die with them, if you will, and and that's really the, the difference. So, if I have to forecast, I, I mean, what does this mean? To, what does this mean? It yeah, means but, to me um, that I think that we will be seeing potentially some rethinking of these large gatherings indoors without masks come the fall. I hope not, and I'm not going to bet that much money on it. But I think it's we are going to do that. Let me ask you
2: me? just a quick follow up, and then I'll let Shane jump in here. Do you think if if an indoor event with a large gathering, and they're not unlikely to do this, but required proof of vaccinization, vaccination, would you actually be okay then with it? Do you think it would then, as long as everybody was doubly vaccinated, or are you worried even among that population?
0: Well, I'm going to confess, I'm not worried about, I would go and I wouldn't have a problem. I'm just predicting what the government will do, Um, not not what you or individually should do. I have no problem being at a baseball game. I have no problem being at a show or an indoor event. I've been vaccinated. Everyone that I know is vaccinated. I don't expect life to have no risk. And I don't think that you'll be seeing hospitalizations or deaths coming up, what I'm what I'm per, 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 expecting is a reaction uh, and that we'll, we'll be worried about this rather than than needing to worry about
3: it. Yeah. And I think that speaks to kind of the kind of the fascinating. It's not particularly analytical, but like kind of the, the psychological or, or public policy aspect of this is what what does have to rise or what does have to happen for us to start taking isolating measures and s- start shutting stuff down again. I mean, I, per, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Audi. It's sort of like I don't think a rise in cases necessarily, you know, it makes me anxious given my vaccinated status, etc. And, and, and but but a rise in hospitalizations, is that enough or is it do, do we wait until the hospitals are close to getting overwhelmed again? you know, I mean, these are the kind of, the, the, I mean, and obviously every, it's going to be extra fascinating, because there is no single answer to that question, even if, if, you know, I mean, I'm sure every politician has one in mind, but, but it's, there's going to be a huge variance between regions, as far as what the answer to that question is. Yep. And again, as you saw, as already kind of pointed out when you first listed off some of those ones that are kind of uh, have a rise in hospitalizations right now those are the regions of the U.S. that are probably most likely to have you know like to not take action Mm -hmm. or at least not take quick action.
2: So we're here on Wharton Moneyball this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics and I'm here with my co-host this morning professor of statistics Adi Weiner professor of statistics Shane Jensen some combination of the three of us and our primary host and friend Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball podcast edition. Um, and again, you can listen to us throughout the week. Uh, we're doing what we've been doing the last 18 months or so, which is talking about COVID uh, during the first segment. So guys, um, here are some numbers that I have found just today about, and it relates to exactly what you were saying, Shane, about cases, deaths, and active cases. And my question to you is, is this the new normal, or using your words, Shane, um, is these the numbers that we're just going to say, well, that's what it is and we're not going to do anything. Just so you know, depending on what website you go to, and this is also interesting. The number of cases yesterday was somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000. That was somewhat, that was the new cases. Um, the number of deaths was somewhere between 96 and 137, depending on which website you went to. And the number of active cases is about four to five million, which is not inconsistent with ten to 15,000 new cases mm-hmm. per day. Um, should we expect, like in some sense, I mean, Adi, you've said this in the beginning, about you know, in a normal flu season, about hundred people die a day. That would be thirty thousand plus a year. Um, should we expect that going forward, we're going to have four to five million active cases at any one time, eight to ten thousand new cases a day, and a hundred deaths a day? And that's just what we'll live with. Or, can I just can I check? Or, your of course, matter? eventually, though, you will run out of people that actually, you know, if you believe that having COVID prevents you from getting further infected, then eventually, this is what, by the way. Before I get to you, Adi, in marketing, we talk about this as the Bass model of diffusion. Um, you know, it's the classic expression, you can only die once, which is once you've adopted the product, you can't be a first-time adopter again. So in some sense, the denominator is going down because the number of vaccinated people plus the number of COVID people, that number keeps going up. The number of highly susceptible people's going down. So even if the base rate stayed the same, you'd expect a decline because just the number of people that are highly at risk goes down.
0: Well, let me, let me just check your math on it. You just said there's about 10,000 cases a day. So new active, cases, new, 10 to 11,000
2: to 15,000, depending on what website you go to.
0: So when you say active cases, you mean at, uh, people who had it at any one point or do you mean currently active cases, the unresolved cases? So the way they defined it is people that like, for example, um, they define it as uh, unresolved cases, like people I that have had it within a certain time frame. So then how do you get several million currently active if there's about 10,000 a day? And what is the case resolves in about two weeks on average or three weeks? On yeah. So I don't uh, I, I just look at the Worldometer website. They define that as the number of active cases. I don't know how it's a, Seems a lot rather high. I, I would guess it'd be more like 200,000. Uh, rather than you would certainly uh, think if you just took two
2: weeks times fourteen days times fourteen to fifteen thousand,
0: you get to two hundred thousand. Yeah, that, that just seems a little off to me. But for but let's just put that aside for a moment. Um, one of the things that that I noticed particularly about hospitalizations and deaths um, in, in, is that the CDC, when they aggregate, they're not really differentiating um, at least at this level of the data. Eventually, they will. But at this level, this sort of surveillance level data they just note, did you have co- uh, a positive test while you were in the hospital or when you died? And they already will immediately recognize that there are people dying with COVID, but not from COVID. Um, and right. particularly vaccinated people, uh, they're, they're often asymptomatic. And, and COVID testing is absolutely standard now anytime you enter the hospital or even think about entering the hospital in your, in your pre-admission testing. So uh, there's a lot of people getting tested and a lot of vaccinated people and unvaccinated people are showing up with asymptomatic positive tests. Let me ask
2: you a question. Have you seen any data right now, since we're an empirical show, a mm data-oriented show, to suggest that the initial, not the initial, but once the, you know, phase three trials were over, that essentially, it's not 100%, but like near 100% prevention of hospitalization and deaths due to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine.
0: Have you seen any indication that it's not in the very high 90s? Uh, I don't see any indication it's not in the very high 90s, but it's not 99.9. It's, 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 it's lower than that. Um, I, it's absolutely cl- clear that there have been hundreds of Americans fully vaccinated who have died of coronavirus Hundreds, uh, not right. what their circumstances were, what, the, what their medical conditions are. There's, a, I, I just spoke to someone whose family who grew up in India um, and now lives in America, has been for America for a long time, who knows an Indian doctor who went to, to was fully vaccinated, who went to India to help. This is a terrible story. Who um, died of Corona Delta variant um, in India, even though being fully vaccinated. So I don't believe if you if you walk into a zone where prevalence is extremely high and that's got to be that's a hugely important factor, which we always forget, point. you know, you, in marriage in May in the worst times here, coronavirus was everywhere. And, and the randomness was whether you actually got it, even when you were exposed. Now, the randomness is to run into someone who has COVID because it's so much more on uh, uh, um, less prevalent. Don't go. You don't want to go to a war zone. <laughs> That's a bad place. I mean, what I mean by a war zone is a place where coronavirus is is rampant, and I don't think we'll ever see that here in the United States again because of vaccinations.
3: And I mean, I think it's worth sort of just to follow up on that. It's worth kind of thinking. I, I mean, we think about immunization as a very as a binary thing. You either are immune or you are not. Right. When in fact, right. obviously, our immune system does not quite work that way. And so it's worth kind of keeping in mind that, you know, I, I consider myself somewhat fully protected from COVID. But it is within the context of not necessarily putting myself in extreme exposure sort of situations, because I think those kind of in cases where there's an, a, a heavy prevalence is where you're much more likely to get these kind of breakthrough cases. I think. Well, just
2: to give an example. I was at an indoor sporting event the other day. I was I told you I was at the Clu- uh, Suns Clippers game. Um, they checked everybody's vaccination or a negative test within 48 hours on the way in the door. Um, my son and I were wearing our masks uh, at our seats, as we were told to. And then eventually, during the third quarter, my son, who's 15, uh, looked over me and said, Dad, what are we doing here? You know, you know, they checked everybody on the way in the door. We've been vaccinated. So I must admit, during the fourth quarter, well, to boo as bad as the game was being played, I had, to, I had to have my mask off to do a little bit of booing and to say, wow, what this is awful, terrible basketball. I don't care about either of these teams, but I would like someone to make a shot in the final score in the fourth quarter, not to be 15 to 14. Um, either way, um, I, I, I agree with you, Adi. I think, remember, exposure, even this was always true, exposure, length of exposure, dosage of exposure, is always one of the major factors, if not the major factor in the likelihood of getting it, given you're exposed. Like just because you walk by somebody with coronavirus, even if, you're, um, if you see them for three seconds or two seconds and you walk past them very quickly, the odds are very low. If you're in the same room with a lot of people with it, then the odds of course are very different, right? I have one other topic related. I saw, um, as you guys may have seen, there was a New York Times article that just came out yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it basically said that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine may last years or forever. In other words, apparently there's some way that it gets uh, in your bone marrow and that in some sense, this is your, you know, your your infantry. If coronavirus ever comes and attacks you again, that it will reemerge and start assaulting and doing whatever it's going to do to prevent the protein attachment and the, you know, the replication. Um, this article seemed to suggest and had a lot of you know, prominent people talking about this, we may never need booster shots. So what are your guys' thoughts about this article and what was what was said in there? Adi, why don't we start with you and then we'll go to well, you.
0: I read it. I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I don't pretend to know, it. I don't pretend to be able to critique it because it's absolutely way out of my, my wheelhouse uh, medically. Um, I'm not necessarily that surprised considering how effective the vaccine is. Um, but I do believe that booster shots are more likely than not only because, Well, I hate to sound like a real cynic, but I do believe there's a lot of money to be made in booster shots and and that we will, and I think there's going to be an appetite for them, particularly if people thought that they protect against more potentially more contagious or deadly variants um, and if it just does continue to linger as I'm expecting it to do, I mean, and I think that that will mean that people will consider it. I'm not sure it'll be that necessary, but I do think it'll be considered and we will be considering taking them. Yeah. And as
3: Audie mentioned, I think the is the, the, the arrival of the, the development of new variants, I think is kind of the key part of this. I mean, certainly I, I, you know, I, I've, I've no reason to disbelieve the science that this particular current um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, you know, kind of protect against the current version of COVID that we've been wor- dealing with over the last like year and a half. But we've already, we're already seeing all these kind of variants pop up, and thankfully, none of them seem to be kind of have really escaped the vaccines that we currently have. But I yeah. mean, yep. you know, I, I, I personally think it's probably only a matter of time before some variant does develop that is at least somewhat resistant to yep. the vaccines that we current
2: currently have, and that's when we'll certainly start needing boosters. Yeah, I think um, that's why Shane, your point, and, and Adi made this point earlier, which is people say, well. I don't live in that area. What does it matter? Yeah, but the problem is replication and continued viruses lead to mutations, which lead to a potential variant that we all care about. And this really is one of those situations where you know the the ad campaigns they're using, you know, don't just get a shot for yourself, get a shot for others, is true because the longer this continues to go on, not just in the U.S. but worldwide, it's back to Adi's point about why Israel might be smart to close its borders is because if someone comes in with a variant that all of a sudden Israel is not resistant to then the pro- especially if they're out of vaccine or none of us have a booster for that back- vaccine they could be back like all of us at square one and they don't want that to happen either yeah
3: and yeah, i mean it's it, it's a humanitarian disaster if a country or a, a you know any kind of area basically throws away vaccines right now because they've they somehow have run out of a willing populace to take them Your, Israel's got several countries on their border they could just hand those out to that I think oh, would be they tried.
0: To...
3: <laughs> But well yeah no I mean in Israel's case the politics of the situation certainly mess things up are, 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 yeah. make it more messy but more generally I, I do know that like you know for example Montana was giving out you know, vaccines at the border, Canadian drivers coming down because they sort of see that, uh, that they want that border to stay open. And they sort of see that as, as kind of, you know, I I think it's in our public health interest, you know, to try and get these vaccines out globally as much as possible. Now that we basically, you know, have enough in in the country to do uh, all of our willing population.
0: So I actually have two things uh, on the horizon. I mean, one of the things is we aren't vaccinating under 12s. Um, And 12 to 16 are more recently being vaccinated. And they have observed that there are much more frequent side effects from the vaccine in the younger population, particularly myocarditis, which is an inflammation around the heart. In most cases, it resolves and it goes away, but not in every case. Um, And it it is a reminder that vaccinations do have rare but serious complications. And I think we're still trying to figure out how frequent they are. Um, even though we have massive amounts of people taking them Bobby. before you know, we
2: leave this topic yeah. you've been one of the people that've talked about you say well obviously for someone like you and me in our 50s of course you're going to get the vaccine yeah. but you know you might call giving someone under 12 or even 12 to 16 like they're really doing public service because they you could argue the the side of the potential side effects the rate of that could be at least as high as the rate of actually getting a serious illness as a result. So I just wanted to have you touch on that before you move to your second topic. Well,
0: I definitely, I 100% agree. 12 to 16-year-olds are doing public service. Um, and I'm, I'm going to throw this out because uh, it's, it seems to be running about four to one males. So the myocarditis, the inflammation in the heart, um, lots and lots of things about COVID have disproportionately affected men. They die worse. Um, and, and this myocarditis seems to be um, uh, uh worse for, for men. Men just are weaker. I mean, let's just be honest folks. Um, our immune systems, we're not, we're not built to survive childbirth. And, and I, I don't know whether this is a, that's a total outlandish thing to say. I mean that's true. We aren't built for that. Um, but it does seem to have ramifications. And yeah, I think I think and I'd be I don't have anyone under 12 in my family, um, but I'd, I'd like to wait to see what what really develops on that because that's super public service under 12 because they they don't even spread it that much. And have essentially zero risk of, of complications. And now you're talking about a vaccine. My second question was really more for Shane. Did we open the border with Canada yet? Is that is that known yet? I don't even know. It's not, it's not officially
3: open yet. Not open. like for, for purely kind of recreational travel. I think if you if you had a real
2: reason to get into Canada, you probably could, but it's not and, open yet.
0: And the Blue Jays are still playing in Buffalo. No, 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 no. Yes.
2: The Blue Jays No, no the, the, the Blue Jays are playing in Tampa, aren't they?
0: I, I think it, Buffalo. Who's who's playing in Buffalo? Someone's no, no, in no.
2: I, I I saw I was at a Blue Jays Tampa Bay Rays game in
0: Tampa. Well, that would make but, sense. It's a Tampa Bay. <laughs> yeah, no, right. I mean, I mean, I think they're
3: playing their home games still in Buffalo. I mean, I do know that they had to get the, the Canadians even to kind of play in the out of their kind of like you know uh bubble, basically, to play in the, the the latter half of the playoffs had to get special permission from the government. So I I if I had to I I believe the Blue Jays are still playing their uh, no, no. When you say all, the both their home and away games in the United
2: States. I just want to be clear. We're talking about baseball or hockey. I'm, I'm baseball. Baseball.
3: You you talked about the Blue Jays, right?
2: Yeah, the Blue Jays. Baseball. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure I'm 99. I was at a game. The Blue Jays played a home game in Dunedin, Florida against oh. the Tampa Bay Rays. Oh, if it was a home game, that could be. I mean, Maybe I, I thought I, they are in, I uh... guess
3: I haven't been tracking that closely. I thought they were still playing
2: their home but games. They're, in they're definitely. I mean, in regardless, league regardless league. they
3: are. They're the they're, they're not, they are not actively crossing right, the border cross during the baseball, the baseball season. Yeah. All
2: right. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking about COVID. Obviously, we have two quarters to go. We'll be doing our open sports segment. Uh, so please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to Q2 here of Wharton Moneyball, the podcast edition. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Heidi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Kate Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 132. Um, and again, for the last 18 months, just we just finished up uh, quarter one where we talked about COVID. For the next two quarters, we'll be having open sports. And then in the fourth quarter, we're, we're fortunate today to have joining us Neil Payne, a longtime friend of the show, senior writer at 538. Well, guys, it's this time of year again. And um, you know it's time for us to start thinking about uh, the biggest sporting event of the year, the Super Bowl in, in my household which is the July 4th uh, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. So just to remember, to remind every one of our listeners here, um, this is something that is sanctioned by a very important federation, the WFOCE, the World Federation of Competitive Eating. Um, There is an actual, um, it is going to be an outdoor event this year. However, it's not going to be at the right in front of the Nathan's Hot Dog Place. It's actually going to be in a stadium in Coney Island. They're actually having it this year. Um, and, uh, they're actually hosting it there, but it's on July 4th. Um, it's actually starting for those listeners that want to watch it. It'll be on ESPN starting at 11 AM this year, not 12 AM. So though, for those people don't turn on at your normal time of noon to watch the uh, hot dog eating contest. And there's kind of, obviously there's a couple big things. One is Joey Chestnut is still, he's now the five time reigning champion, but he's won 13 out of the last 14, as people know. Um, He was only defeated this once by Matt Stoney, um, who's also competing again this year. Um, We have a big shift in the women's section. Uh, Mickey Sudo, who's won, I believe, seven straight titles in the female event. She will not be participating this year because she's pregnant. And so the women's field is wide open. But I wanted to start with you guys. Um, Let me give you a couple of uh, things about the event that we know. So right now, Chestnut is minus 1,500 against the field. So any any initial thoughts about that? So obviously well, translating that gives him about a ninety five percent probability to win. Why is he so dominant? Well, you know this is I you know I don't want to call it I don't know if it's a if this is uh, even respectfully gets a nature versus nurture uh, question. Maybe he's got a throat and esophagus that's more built towards eating things quickly. Maybe he's got a stomach that actually uh, has greater plasticity just by uh nature but there's not
3: there's nothing kind of about his strategy uh either in in during the competition or sort of outside of the competition that like you know kind of sets them apart that's a great question
2: the answer is no so they all do the same you know eat multiple hot dogs followed by buns dipped in water multiple hot dogs buns dipped in water everybody since Kobayashi started this strategy back in the mid-2000s. This is everybody's strategy. So no, nobody just leisurely eats hot dogs and buns or puts mustard on or anything like that. It's everyone uses the same technique. So no, that is not a differentiator. Yeah, Adi? Yeah, I
0: guess my question is, what is it that makes someone enter the field of professional eating? And that maybe addresses your question. Um, are they people who at a young age recognize that they have this incredible capacity to consume large amounts of food and that someone suggested they should try one of these contests they train a little bit they get better quickly at it I mean I'm trying to figure out what it is that makes a professional eater a professional eater uh, and and maybe that'll answer some well I'll some play, cues I'll of what, play, what's going on with Jerry Chestnut
2: yeah I'll play a sports developmental thing I think we all I'll play even just you know, I'll call it reinforcement learning, which is obviously, a, it means one thing in machine learning, but it means yeah. another thing in, you know, in the psychology of why we do things. Um, don't we like to do things that we're good at? So I would imagine that competitive eaters have always had a passion for food or, or as you said, out, even more importantly, um, you know, I would say you invest in the slope, not the intercept. Mm-hmm. These are people that as they've started to try to eat more and more, they're like, I can do this. In other words, the derivative early on in their experience, just like in baseball, basketball, tennis, you know, someone is not a bad tennis player for seven years. And then all of a sudden at age 20 says, you know, I think I'm going to try out for Wimbledon. No, I mean, you have to get positive derivative when you start out something. And that's probably going to make you work harder thinking you can even achieve more. I don't know why it would be any different than
0: competitive eating. Eric, have you ever attempted to eat a large amount of food very quickly? Is that something you've ever tried? You are clearly you our most up. passionate follower. Yeah, I've, I've eaten a lot,
2: a large quantity of food, but I'm not really a very fast eater in that way. As a matter of fact, I've never even, maybe this will be the year that I'll do it. I've never even said on July 4th, like in the 10 minutes that they're given, how many hot dogs can I eat? Now, of course, <laughs> I'm not eating the hot dogs and the buns dipped in water. I'm just going to eat hot dogs. But I've said this, and I'm pretty sure this is true.
0: I think I could eat. If I say a number, you guys might say, like, All right, this should be fun. <laughs> How many hot dogs can you eat in 10 minutes? All right. How many? I, I, I think I could do, I have a number for myself.
2: I think I could eat somewhere between 10 to 12.
0: Okay. I'm a little lower, but I was going to suggest eight to 10 for me personally.
2: Shane,
3: what can tense what Yeah, 10's what pop, tense, tense popped into my mind, you know, basically about one a minute or so but i I do want to eat them normally (laughs) um you know so 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 that is the thing I i mean that's the thing for me is i've always enjoyed eating and i've been good at it in kind of a volume sense but yeah the speed aspect of it i think you know a large part of my enjoyment of eating food is you know taking the time to actually taste it and not making myself sick from it so yeah right. this the, the, the this idea that yeah I, 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 I guess I'm kind of equally intrigued by Audie's kind of you know like mm-hmm. early development question here mm-hmm. like what you know you kind of I guess you 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 certainly like eating food and you're good at it but like you kind of notice that you can sort of do it very quickly without well, any kind be, of really also, um, unpleasantness.
2: Yeah, let me go back to Adi's original question, because let's try to be moneyball people, and we just happen to be applying it right now to the WFOCE. (laughs) Joey Chestnut has got to be close now to age 40. I haven't looked up his age, but I think he's close to age 40. Um, That Obviously, my guess is that's not the peak um, elasticity of your stomach or your throat or your esophagus, but his talent level must be above other people, such a degree that no one has come up and caught him at this point. Now, Adi, it could be your rationale, which is there just aren't enough people. Like in other words, he's the maximum of a distribution. It's not like there's 10 million people trying to catch him. It's a small number of people trying to catch him. But if we're still doing Wharton Moneyball in 20 years, are we going to be saying, wow, that 60-year-old Joey Chestnut has 32 titles out of the last 35 years? Because it's just his gap is so large and it's just, even though his age curve is having him decline, is there any way we could start to think about what age curves look like in this sport
0: or, you know, what is his, uh, what is his gap? Can you give us some numbers? Give us some, give us some context here. How many hot All dogs? Right, have you so, l-
2: we'll just give you an example um, his record number of hot dogs is somewhere. I, I don't think he's gotten to 80 yet, but let's say he will certainly eat above 70 and well, depending on the heat. But he'll certainly eat above seventy, but probably he's going for somewhere in the eighty range. Okay,
3: so like ten times what your estimated intake was, Audie.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. That's exactly. so ten times. What I take ten minutes, he does in one minute. And and tell me what, what is number two. Yeah, so I think Matt Stoney,
2: I think, is the number two ranked eater. When he beat Chestnut, it was a down year for both of them because of the heat. I think Stoney ate 66 and maybe Chestnut ate 63. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, no one else besides Kobayashi and Chestnut has ever reached 70 before. So mm-hmm. he has at least, this is a good way to think about it, he has just going into the competition, bare minimum, you'd have to say, he's got at least a 10 hot dog expected gap between him and number two. And it might even be 15 hot dogs. Like if you told me right now to make a bet on second, I'd say second. And I can't tell you who it's going to be. Might eat 60 and he's going to eat 75. And so he'd have to have a really bad day and they'd have to have an exceptional day. And also, I I know I'm going to say this in a statistical way. You laugh because I'm talking about hot dog eating. I don't think the standard deviation of performance in hot dog eating is that high. It's not like he's going to have a day where he eats 40. It's just not going to happen. And a well, you met, you, hot dog you, person is not going to have a day where they're going to eat 70.
3: You, you, you mentioned though one thing that I think probably would drive greater variation than sort of you would usually see, which is kind of, you know, weather. like, I assume like, you know, if you were to see a standard devi, you know, a, a deviant bigger than that, it would be because it's, you know, 110 with, High humidity or something like that. I mean, you know, Joe, Joey Chestnut presumably is still human and would not be able to, you know, get nearly to his, his usual performance levels in like a really adverse weather kind of well, situation, time, like extreme oh, heat.
2: Yeah, last time I checked, by the way, they're looking fortunate for Monday. It looks to be about eighty degrees, which is pretty good. Um, I think I told you guys a couple of years ago. Uh, my middle son went, Zach, exactly, who Adi knows well, went to the hot dog eating contest and he told me to place a bet on the under of 72 hot dogs because it was 98 degrees out and really hot. And let me tell you what happened in the event. This may get to your point, Shane. Joey Chestnut, after five minutes, five minutes, had something like 48 hot dogs. And I'm like, I'm doomed. He didn't even make it to 70 in the second five minutes. The heat, he was just, I mean, the heat basically destroyed. People were like, he's going to eat 85, he's going to eat 90, And he slowed down to where he was eating only three or four hot dogs per minute, which for him, you know, he's going for 10. As a matter of fact, just to show you, the over-under, this shows you the non-linearity of things. The total over-under right now is 73 and a half, okay? For the first minute, it's nine and a half, just to show you. So 10 times nine and a half is 95. You'd be like, well, if he could just eat nine and a half every minute, he'd eat 95. It goes from nine and a half to 73 and a half total, which means, you know, just the average has to be around seven, mm-hmm. which means in the last minute, your over under might be four and a half or five, just to show you how much degradation you get from the first minute to the last. So,
3: so is, is it the case, kind of like we've learned in many of our shows with horse racing, is that competitive eaters never actually speed up? They just slow down more, you know, the great ones slow down more slowly than the. It's the great other.
2: that you bring that up, Shane. I hadn't thought about that point, but. If you look after three minutes of the hot dog eating contest, you'll say, oh, this might be the year. You know, Matt Stoney and other guys, they're right up there with Chestnut. And then after six minutes, he will have degraded a little, he'll have slowed down a little bit and they'll have slowed down a lot. That's exactly what happens. If this was a two minute hot dog eating contest, they've optimally designed the length in the sense of the true ability is going to come out. If you made it four minutes, five minutes, I think you'd find much more variation, which is not that surprising. Yadi,
0: yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, I'm just. It's a hot dog thing. I'm just No, but Audi, so it's a
2: Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah the topics we've been talking about. We've been yeah. talking about difference in ability. Yeah. We've been talking about training technique. We've been talking about slowing down first minute versus last minute. We talk about the effect of factors like heat and weather. We talked about age curves. If I just it's the that's why I like talking about besides, I like hot dogs and I like the competition. It's it's a Trojan horse. Who cares right. that it's right. so, so?
0: in all seriousness that I'm going to ask you a question. Do you really think he's 20 is 20 to one Joey Chestnut? Because my general view is uh, just taking a page out of sports in general, you know, injury or some kind of suboptimal health condition or weather condition is in the five to 10% range of a possibility. And you got to seriously consider that. And I don't know if you could play the other side because you can't get the field at no, yeah. in
2: the field you get at plus six fifty.
0: Yeah, so that's just not good enough, right? So there's a huge gap between uh, twenty to one on Chestnut winning and what you know one to seven on, on the one field. He's yeah. like
3: the Tiger Woods of of, yeah. of 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 hot dog eating, basically, where the, he kind move, of throws probably, the odds on. The one yeah. thing
2: besides heat, of course, I you know, uh, using the vernacular of us competitive eaters here, um, there is the probability, of course, of the reversal of fortune which would lead to the automatic disqualification. So even if Joey Chestnut feels fine, the heat is fine, there is a possibility you eat a hot dog and you have a reversal of fortune. Ah, And that, of course, would lead you to losing the competition. And And that has to add a couple of percent. I mean, there has to be some probability on the 70th hot dog, you know, of things go the opposite direction.
0: Does that happen to Joey Chestnut
2: before? Uh, It has not happened to Joey Chestnut before, but let me just tell you, it's looked like it was going to happen to Joey Chestnut. Can I
0: ask another question about the competitors? Is this his full-time job? Is he he makes enough of eating?
2: He's actually, interestingly, he was trained as an engineer. Um, Matter of fact, the first six or seven years of competing, he, as far as I know, he still had his job. He now, you know, does corporate events. And of course, WFOC doesn't just do hot dogs, but they do all pies and milk and spam and wings and all kinds of other stuff. I think he gets appearance fees. To appear around the country as a competitive eater, yeah, I believe it's his full-time job. Well, either way, we will see you on July fourth, and remember to all your listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, 11 a.m. Eastern now, <laughs> uh, not your normal 12 o'clock time. And if you if you're uh, you're expecting them to be in front of the Nathan's, they're doing it actually in a stadium this year, but it is outdoors and there will be fans, so it's exciting that it it is back. So uh, this is Eric Bradlow. Uh, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of us are here every week recording here on our Serious XM Wharton Moneyball podcast edition. So guys, maybe to a more serious sport. I don't know if it's a more serious, not to me it isn't, a more serious sport or not. Um, let's talk about the NBA and what's going on in the NBA right now, because it's, it's one of these uh, strange situations. So, you know, uh, we have the Phoenix Suns in the Western Conference that are up three to two. Um, they had a very surprising outcome in yesterday's game at home in game five, up three to one. I think the final score, they lost by somewhere in the 12 to 14 range. I turned it off in the last minute or so. Um, now we have the issue of, and by the way, just to remind our fans here, the uh, L.A. Clippers, I believe, were down 2 nothing in this series but have been down two nothing in the previous two series that they came yeah. back and won. They beat they won the first round in 7, the next round they won in 6, they actually won the next four. How do we think about the Western Conference right now and will the Clippers be the first team in NBA history to come back, you know, three series two nothing down and win this fourth? Be Shane, what do you think?
3: I mean, it certainly makes me want to happen just because of the uniqueness of that, and then maybe they go down to a two nothing to the Bucks or or, or or whatever as well in the in, in the finals. Um, I mean, I, I I I do think. I mean, I, I guess I I, I would wouldn't put it. You know, I would still certainly favor the Suns the series, given that they only have to win one more as opposed to the two. But I mean, you know, to the extent that there's any kind of momentum, and I'm with you, Eric. I do believe in momentum in in short series. Um, especially in in basketball, um, and hockey, uh, I I, I think you know I, I would I would sort of say that like you know if I if I was a betting man I would probably put it more like you know maybe to like two thirds or something like that for the Suns, which gives you know of course the uh, um the Clippers a real chance.
2: So just to be clear, and Adi, I'd love your uh, estimate on this as well. Let's let's say I tell you right now that tomorrow night the Clippers win, so it goes to three three game seven. Game would be at Suns. What odds do you give the Suns? And what odds do you give the Clippers? Remember, the Clippers will have the momentum. We'll have just won games five and six. What odds would you give the Suns to win game seven? Anything more than 50%? Yes. Any More than
0: 50%. Well, they would be home to start with. And I believe they're the favorite to start with. So they're both of those things. So you got to push it at least to 60 65%. So I'd go two to one on the Suns. Really? In game seven? Well, you know what? I'm not so, so momentum. I don't know whether, I mean, I I don't know whether I, I I think there's, there's a strange, there's a strange relationship between games and basketball. I I don't know if I can categorize it or if anyone has appropriately categorized it to me in a way that's predictable, right? Um, We obviously observe these things. Um, but it does seem to be that it is that there is a serial autocorrelation of some kind in basketball that I don't think so you just can,
2: explain can... to our listeners what you mean by serial autocorrelation okay. within a series and games,
0: right? So essentially, you, you, when you when you try to predict the outcome of any given game, what goes into that? So obviously, the players on either side, um, whether it's home or away, anybody who might be injured, any environmental issues that can potentially come in co- combinations. But now the question is, do you add the results of the previous games, in in a, in a way that's above and beyond the the how they estimate the 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 playing uh, ability of the players, right? So obviously, if a player got injured in the previous game, causing them to lose that game, and now they're still injured the next game, that already accounts for some sort of connection between the games. So so essentially, what you're saying is the result of the previous games do those matter in in terms of making a prediction in any given day? That's an autocorrelation. And, and I believe that there really is some in basketball. But, but let don't be clear, know how Just for our it.
2: listeners here on Mort Moneyball, what Adi's also talking about, which is so crucially important, is a conditional autocorrelation. So mm-hmm. Adi's conditioning on who's home, who's away, who ha- who is favored in advance, maybe the, the season record. You're saying, is there extra predictive ability above and beyond the standard variables you'd use for a win? And you believe there would be a positive coefficient um, there might be a positive coefficient to state dependence. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't think it's positive. I, I
0: think there's something related. I wish I could say I knew it even if it was positive or negative. I almost feel like when a team loses in basketball, the other team is learns from that mistakes and those set of mistakes in such a way that they make them better than, what you, than they were the previous game. I don't know whether that's good awesome. enough. Let be. me ask
2: you a question. Do you think, well, so number one, do you think that effect So I have a sequence of questions where statistics show. So let me go through the sequence of questions. So first, I'll ask both of you. I'll start with you, Adi, and then Shane. Do you think the effect is asymmetric, meaning the effect
0: given a loss is different than the effect given a win? Okay, so I think it is. And my information, I'll just give you, comes from our own Moneyball conversations we've had with our experts who've tried to explain these things to us. And one of the things that, that I think I've learned from this conversation is that basketball is a really complicated game in the sense that the way you prepare for a game really depends on your specific opponent. And in the, in, during the season, you don't do that very much. But during a seven-game series where you're playing again and again a well, well-understood opponent... You'll learn a lot from that, what happened in the previous game, and I actually think that when you when you probably learn more from a loss than a win. So maybe I am saying it is asymmetric, asymmetric, and that when you lose, you learn more from that. In terms of re-strategizing your 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 defense, if you will, your offense, you you know what what some, somehow worked or didn't work. Basketball is a hugely complex game. There's lots of ways to score baskets, right? Um, and and you can probably change your strategies given given on what happened, given the results of previous games, particularly when they didn't seem to go well for you. So, Shane, let me go to yeah. you on this one, and then I have two more. So, Shane, you go. Let's finish on the
2: asymmetry, and then I have two more questions, and the next one I'll start with you, Shane.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know exactly, I, I assume with the asymmetric thing, we're really thinking about regular season games where you'd actually change opponents, right? I'm not quite sure I know how to think of the asymmetry in, like, a, a series where you're playing the same opponent, you know, multiple times in a row, in which case, you know, the, the 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 favorable or unfavorable matchup that led to a loss by one team also kind of supports the win by the other team, so I'm not quite sure how to think about that, but in the regular season, like, when you have kind of, when, say, a, a, you know, gun injury or something Something's exposed about your system I do think there's an asymmetry and I think that you know kind of the, the sort of like recovery or whatever from a loss is in time I, I think a asymmetric or, or more dramatic than the plus that you get from a win
2: so let me go to you the next one quickly Shane Adi said he's conditioning on a win do you care about the size of the win so what are your thoughts on that and then I'll go to Adi on that one
3: um, at a certain point, yes, I mean, I think a close game versus a not close game there is some signal there. i I wouldn't do a linearity thing, right? like a blowout that's fifteen points versus a blowout that's you know twenty five points. I don't think there's any distinction there, but I do I do I would make a, a you know, I do think I would make a distinction between a close victory versus, you know, kind of essentially like a coin flip victory versus something where you showed more dominance.
0: And Adi, what are your thoughts? I think I, I think I have to pretty much agree with Shane. I don't
2: have anything different. So are you surprised? Uh, then does it add any? And I have one last one. Do you have any surprise then that not only did the Clippers win at Phoenix, but they won by 12 to 14 points? Doesn't that suggest a little something more than just a win? I mean, that's a big win.
3: Yeah, and I don't know if that, that suggests, you know, like an extra drive by the Clippers or, you know, a sense of sudden complacency by the Suns that they certainly haven't right. displayed up until now. So I'm not quite sure what it shows, but I I, I would, you know, I, I it makes me view the Suns less favorably, that blowout, than if it was just a kind of a coin flip, uh, very close victory or so loss. Maybe sorry, in the last the minute front we front have, Adi, let awesome. me
2: ask you the last one. Do you think this effect is stationary? In other words... Um, Beginning of the series versus end of the series. I mean, these are the standard things we as statisticians think about. If we think, is there an asymmetric effect? Does it matter on the size? And is it stationary? That's why I was saying game seven. Would, your, would two wins in a row at games one and two change whether it was games five and six? Would you, would you look at it any differently depending on where it is in the series? Abi, let me start with you.
0: Yes, I think, I think it does make a difference. I think that the beginning is, you learn a lot more in the beginning than late. Um, And I, I frankly, I wish I knew a little bit more about the intricacies of basketball and I, uh, that that could help me understand like the different strategies and how you might, you might change your play, but enough that I've seen suggests that you do change and you do change uh, probably rapidly in the beginning. It's not like as I think that when you're playing the same team over and over and over again. Um, things, things that's information that's useful.
2: And Shane, just quickly to you, 15 seconds. I'll I'll only add on.
3: I mean, I agree with audio. I'll only add on that. The one thing about a late kind of two game or three game in a row thing suggests is that you can win both at home and away because in the later parts of a series, you're actually switching locations, you know, between every game.
2: Good point as well, and it raises the Clippers' chances because Game 6 is back in LA. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, Eric Rado, Shane Jensen, and Weiner, we hope you enjoyed the first half. Stay with us and join us right after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
1: On Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to Q3 here of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both Professors of Statistics. We're here on the podcast version of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on SiriusXM 132, coming to you asynchronously, but someday again soon we'll be live. Um, and there's a way for you to contribute, and that's how we're going to start off Q3 of our show. If you want to send us an email question, please send it to Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. That's moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. As a matter of fact, we got a question over the last week that I think was pretty much directed, it was directed directly to our hockey expert, Shane. So Shane, why don't you start us off, tell our audience here what the question was, and then we'll do our best to answer it.
3: Yeah, so it basically, so it's from a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's from Stefan Tiodeskos, and thank you very much for the, the, the question. It's basically talking about or observing uh, the long drought that has happened in a canadian team winning the stanley cup and so we're we're kind of reminded of that drought the this year so we're kind of,
2: the 1993
3: is the last time and it was the montreal Canadiens, so we're getting kind of more reminders of it this year because of course the montreal canadians are in the finals and so they have yet another chance to end this drought and the the, the question was basically you know given that that's a you know essentially a 20 year period And we're talking about, you know, you know, five or six, essentially, you know, what is it like 20, 25% at least of the teams in hockey? Um, What, what are the chances that that this is kind of just like bad luck or versus like something uh, different from that? And I do have a few thoughts on that. Um, Mostly that I think it's just bad luck, but I'll I'll, I'll come back to that. But um, one thing that was worth noting that at least, you know, in the, in the mid to late nineties, that kind of structurally led to a disadvantage to the Canadian teams is that essentially is when free agency really kind of started hitting its stride in hockey. And it was also and also cool to with a time when the Canadian dollar was relatively weak relative to the American one. Um, and so I think Canadian teams, at least in the kind of first years of this so-called drought, maybe were actually at a structural competitive disadvantage to American teams. I don't think that that is still the case, certainly. Um, and I, you know, so I don't think there's any kind of structural thing. Most of, I think the last 20 years of, of, of drought or so, or I guess it's now I'm thinking about it, it's 30 years, 30 years of drought or so, um, have been mostly bad luck. And I mean, you know, really kind of the probability question you want to, one of the probability questions you can ask is we've had Canadian teams get to the finals. Fi- this is the sixth time I think in the last 30 years, that a Canadian team has gotten to the finals. Well,
2: let's be clear. The reason um, and they've that lost
3: is- all, all those previous times. The reason times.
2: that's interesting, by the way. That's a really important stat. I love Adi to comment on it too is that they're getting there in basically an expectation with the fraction of teams, but they're not winning. Yeah, that's right. That's, you know, you could say, well, they're not good. they're getting there one fifth, one sixth of the time. And, and that's roughly their fraction. So it's,
3: it, it, so it's a really kind of what, what the real probability question, I do want a probability calculation, but I have one more, you know, kind of thing to add once Audi gives us that probability. Calculation. It's really just about like essentially five losses in a row or something like that. You know, like, so if you think about like losing five finals and it's it, it spread among, I mean, the kind of cool thing is it spread among the Canadian teams, the Oilers, the Flames, Canucks, the you know, most of the Canadian the Sanders have all gone to the finals and lost.
0: Right. So can I can I ask can I ask a background question for uh, yeah for for, us, for the, our listeners who don't know the, the details? You said there's 25 percent of the teams are are, are Canadian. Is yeah.
3: That... I mean, I mean, it's 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 either five or I think it's six or seven now out of uh, 30 okay. to 31. Right. I so mean, the there, I both those numbers you're... have changed over the span of this drought, so that's why I'm. But so it's giving 30 a years, you have line.
0: 60 teams that make the finals, right? So you should have expected. A quarter of them to have been Canadian teams. That's more like fifteen or sixteen rather than six. So um, that's just not that much. Am I? Am I? Remember, two teams make the finals, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. No, that's so, true. That's, that's true. true. So maybe, 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 maybe they actually are. are so they are. Kind of they seem to be deeply under reduced playoff. Uh, um and then not winning all six of them it's like double trouble you you've gotten you're way under in terms of number of making it now is that because usually that happens because there's a couple of teams that just forget it um are there any of these canadian teams that just are not in the running at all that just never can i'm not even not during over that span almost every canadian
3: team at least at some time in the last 30 years has been competitive and again it's not like it's the same team going to the finals each time and failing Mm -hmm. it's like that that's been kind of spread out
2: which does certain yeah, so I suggest the question that the person asked was a valid question in the sense, is now back to Adi's point is that there are 30 teams. I just checked, there are six of them are Canadian teams. So there are 60 slots that have been available, and um, six okay. of those 60 slots were taken up by Canadian teams. And so um, that's low in itself. And of course, the outcome is low in itself. So this is, the, by the way, why the question that was asked was such a great one, because this is something empirically we've noticed. Yeah. Now we can try to construct a story for it. But it's not like he's picked us out an event that has a probability of you know, 18% of happening. If you told somebody you flipped a 0.75 coin or a 0.25 coin in this case, and you had 60, you'd expect 15, right? Quarter mm-hmm. of 60 is 15, and we're getting six. And so that seems to be to be well. We can do the the the, ex, the standard deviation is roughly the square root of the number of expected. So it's around three and a half or four. So we're at least two standard deviations below what we would expect here, which makes it about a two percent probability event. Right, and and, and, and here's a very yeah. here's a very
3: statistical question. At what point? Does the deviation become the probability become small enough that uh, that we now talk about a curse as opposed to it just being bad luck? And there is kind of a there's a curse narrative here. So in 1993, just as another little quick history lesson, in 1993, when the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup, they won against the Los Angeles Kings, one of Gretzky's final years with the, with the team, um, and. Uh, there was a really controversial sort of refereeing side of outcome during that series. The Montreal Canadiens were already down one game to nothing. And in game two, they were down in the third period. And the Montreal bench ordered an inspection of Marty McSorley's stick. Marty McSorley was one of the LA Kings players at the time. They wanted the stick inspected to make sure it didn't have an illegal amount of curvature. I, you guys probably didn't even know that there are rules. No, about no, how much curvature I, knew rule. I knew there were rules.
2: I knew there were well, rules. first of all, I know what curvature of a stick means. Um, I know they check it. My, my yeah. sons never played hockey, but they played lacrosse. They check your the basket on your stick to make sure it's not you can't easy, more easily catch the ball. But yeah, of course, there's curvature yeah. rules. I so ever... never,
3: never before had this been checked in a Stanley Cup Finals, and it was an illegal amount of curvature. Munch, uh, the LA got a penalty because of it. Montreal scored on that penalty and went on to win the series. Um, and so, at least if you were to talk to an LA Kings fan, from that point forward, the, they they put a curse on uh, the Canadiens, and it's kind of now extended to all of Canada.
2: So let me as far ask as you a, a, forget maybe there's a curse, but let's—I uh, certainly probably don't believe that. When yeah. do we like? When do we get to a point? maybe, Adi, you could jump in here. When do we get to a point where this is so statistically anomalous that there must be... This not this is relates to a general problem. When we can't explain something through probability, there's probably something wrong with our probability calculation. Like we're assuming stationarity or we're assuming independence across years yeah. or we're assuming that, you know, they should get a uniform number even because they're six out of the 30 teams. You have to, at some point... The probability under an assumed model gets so low, you, start, you have to start saying the assumptions of the model are probably false in some way. Adi, what are your thoughts there? And you're on mute, Adi, you're still on mute.
0: There you go. It's about one in a thousand. If you take the change that a Canadian team does not win, it's actually 0.8 since six out, of a, six out of 30 is, uh, is, is uh, 20%. Yep. Um, so 0.8 raised to the 30th power is, is about one in a thousand is that small a one in a thousand event that's an extremely rare number um mm-hmm. I mean that's that of course happens. yeah and, happens. and, and, so, and I guess and, you know I mean
3: I, I was of course being facetious when I called it this yeah. curse though I do like the idea of this curse of Marty McSorley but yeah. um I think you know at what I mean Eric's kind of asking the question I, I was really trying to ask is it like at what
0: point do we sort of like do these probabilities become I so say low point that, I mean
2: the 30th is it right
0: yeah, I, I don't think. Listen, point eight to the thirties is not right. Obviously, because the the teams are not. I mean, in any given season, it's not a random. There, There's correlation. You know, the team that the team that won one year is going to win the next year over those thirty years. Which was the most dynast, dynastic team in hockey? I Shane, which one was? Was there one? To, oh,
3: yeah, there's been several dynasties. The Pittsburgh yeah. Penguins, two, two different dynasties of the Pittsburgh Penguins essentially yeah. have happened. So, in that, so time. that
0: means the 30 is garbage. I mean, you don't really have 30 independent observations because the, the Pittsburgh Penguins and the dynastic teams they win more frequently in their. Season. And, and there
3: hasn't been the same number of even Canadian teams over so that also, time span as well.
0: Just right. Saying,
2: so, just to your point, if people say, well, what's a, well, if that 30 is cut down to 25, now you have to remove 0.8 to the fifth which now, of so a sudden, maybe it's still 1 in 200 or 1 in 250, but it's not 1 in 1,000. And those yeah. numbers are very different from a statistical perspective. 1 in 100 versus 1 in 1,000, you know, 1 in 100 things happen. 1 in 1,000, we're starting to get to a point where they don't happen as much. Well, that's, that's an interesting look. Thank you to, uh, and remind us again, Shane, who, who is that?
3: Uh, Stefan uh, Tiodescu.
2: Well, Stefan, thank you for the uh, question. And you too can ask a question that we'll cover on Wharton Moneyball. We'll get to another one in just a second, but at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, Adi, I think we also got one about baseball. It'd be great to hear from you what that
0: question was. Actually, the question is about basketball. Oh, basketball. It's, it's, Sorry. It's from Larry Abel, uh, who asked asks the question. It's actually an interesting, very interesting question. So to the background is that the NCAA has ruled that um, players can sell, make money on their likeness whether that's autographs or or signatures or apparel um, that- Let's be clear, I went to
2: the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled this.
0: Well, they certainly ruled that. I'm not sure it was part of that decision, but um, but maybe influenced by that decision. That has to do with more educational benefits, like giving them computers and things like that. Um, And the bottom line is is that what this does is it allows the elite players, certainly, and, and really only the elite ones, to make substantial amounts of money. And the question from Larry Abel is, does that change the draft calculation from the player level? In other words, if you're a one and done freshman who has the opportunity to make quite a big deal of money, I mean, think about who is the the, the greatest freshman one and done basketball player in the last couple of years it was Zion. Um, and... Uh, Yep. He was He was spectacular. He couldn't make any money and while he was in playing basketball for in college. but if he could make money, he probably could have made several millions or more and that it maybe uh, hedges his, his, uh, his risk. So I suggest my answer initial answer would be yes it would. You would imagine players potentially playing out their their college careers with higher probability. The question is how big that effect size is and I'll leave that to you to suggest answers.
2: Well, so let me just start before I even talk about the difference in the draft. Let's talk about its effect on college. Mm. So do we agree with the following? That if more team, more players stayed longer, you could make an argument. Assuming there was some differential across which teams, it could make college basketball more competitive. In other words, there will be a larger set of teams that are able to compete for the national championship, because they're still going to be the one and done players. But now there's more of an incentive for someone who's a very good player, but that can make a good living. Maybe they stay more years, maybe, you know, and if we believe years helps you become a better player, then do we think it'll make college basketball more competitive going forward? Like let me ask Shane, start with you. If, we had to look at the number, maybe. I don't know if this is the right measure, but let's say we take the last 30 years and we measure the number of unique champions there have been in terms of schools. And we looked at the next 30 years now that players can make money. How certain are you that there's going to be more schools in that set of 30 years as opposed to less?
3: Not very certain at all. I, I mean, that, I, it's a very complex question because it really kind of goes to sort of like our, our kind of forecasting of the sort of decision making and how these things kind of cluster. You could imagine that you know athlete like certain kind of powerhouse schools you know would be able to kind of essentially like just add financial packages essentially you know on to kind of to make them even more sort of you know you could see that or or maybe it decentralizes things and you know kind of schools that don't have the sort of historical pedigree can instead kind of compensate in some other way the athletes and kind of draw more in i mean i i You know, it's kind of like, you know, does, uh, I mean, you know, kind of historically has free agency made uh, increased or decreased parity when it hit professional sports, I guess, is maybe the historical
2: analog one needs to look at.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Let's go to Larry's direct question is about how it's going to affect the NBA. So do we agree that potentially it has the ability to reduce uncertainty of the percent of quality when players are drafted wouldn't that be the likely thing is and also it might raise the you know they're more nba ready so now the question becomes what impact does a reduction in uncertainty have like would we see less trades more trades would we see teams wanting to be higher up in the draft lower up in the draft any thoughts on that audio any thoughts on the role of uncertainty in let's call it draft order, ranking value? Does it make the number one pick even more valuable, less valuable? Any thoughts there just from the top of your head? It's a tough question he's asked.
0: Well, yeah, it is a tough question. I think, I think that um, the number one pick potentially becomes more valuable because you can keep that player longer. Um, I mean, uh, actually, no, actually, you might – sorry about that. I got it getting wrong. If you're talking about the NBA draft, it's, it's less valuable because you may not get them. I mean, this is the biggest tragedy, biggest difficulty in baseball when you draft a high school player – they may go to college. Um, right. In NBA draft, you don't see that now. Um, will that be that, or do you have to actually? Let me ask a detail. This is technical. When you when you're in the in college, if you declare for the draft, can you de- decline the pick and go back to school? I think the answer is um,
2: after a certain point you can't. Okay. I think once, like if you've hired an agent or anything like that, you mm-hmm. can't. But if you if you don't hire an agent, this will make a change too.
0: If you don't hire an agent, you can go back. Ah, so that's, that's the question. Will someone get drafted who has been uh, waffling about whether they'll, they'll actually go? And it also will change the, the criterion about the market size, because take a, a school in, say, California, uh, maybe USC, you've got a lot bigger market there um, for paraphernalia and, and logos. <laughs> yeah, great. So great point. Actually, uh, teams, you know, the
2: Gonzagas of the world, it may be harder for them to recruit people if there's a financial component and just bigger markets. Well, that's a great question. Thank you, Larry, for asking your question. Again, you too can ask a question, moneyball at So guys, that's been three quarters of our show. We have a great interview coming up with Neil Payne, senior writer at FiveThirtyEight. Um, So please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
1: On Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Q4. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner, and Change Engine should be joining us as well. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week, and we're obviously doing the podcast version. Um, we're thrilled to have, I don't even know if I should call him a visitor, because he's, you know, if you count, hes I'm sure he's the fifth most person to be on Wharton Moneyball, and of course that's Neil Payne one of the longtime friends of the show. I think everybody knows he's a senior writer at 538. He wrote previously for ESPN Insider, the New York Times, SportsReference.com, also did some work for the NBA's Atlanta Hawks. We're going to have to hear about that as well. Um, Neil, so welcome back to uh, Wharton Moneyball.
0: Hey, Eric. Hey, Adi. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, great to have you. Last time we saw each other, we were in, in the upstairs of Yankee Stadium. And, we uh, were, yeah. And we, I see you've got
1: the Yankee hat on to commemorate yeah. that, I assume.
0: I I, do.
2: I I didn't know. I would have worn my Yankee hat on, too, if I had known. I should know Adi's going to wear it to counterbalance the evilness of Shane Jensen's Boston attire. So,
0: yeah, that, that's got to be on our agenda today, looking, talking about the Yankees collapse. You had written an article some time ago after they had been sweeped by the Red Sox, and now they've been sweeped again. So it's, a, it's an unfortunate, it's not a happy uh, moment for us Yankee fans.
1: Well, Neil, yeah, every every time uh, things seem like they've sort of hit rock bottom this season, they they find a way to get worse, I think.
2: <laughs> well, why don't we start there, Neil, since we don't have you know, we have lots of topics to talk to you about. One of, again, one of the great things about having you is that you write about pretty much every sport. Um, why don't we start with the Yankees? Um, you wrote a recent article about the Yankees trusting the process. It's been hard this season. So where do you see the Yankees right now? And uh, what, what are their challenges?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, in that story, I talked about how they uh, were one of these teams that, you know, we we hear this phrase, trust the process. Obviously, we think about the Philadelphia 76ers and Sam Hankey, I think primarily when we talk about that. But in general, it's also this idea of, you know, when you have results that go a certain way that, uh, you know, maybe you'll have bad results, but if the underlying numbers and the underlying process behind it are uh, sound, then you sort of trust that with a larger sample size, your results will meet your process. And I think Aaron Boone and really the Yankees of this sort of recent uh, vintage have, have preached that constantly. Like Aaron Boone is always talking about, oh, we had good ABs, you know, guys got, got a lot of uh, good swings in. we got into good counts, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting the ball. Well, eventually, you know, things are going to start uh, turning around. And, uh, you know, some of that is, I think he is a very, um, almost irrationally positive, uh, person. Uh, but some of that speaks to, I think the philosophy of this team, which is to sort of, well, if, if you have a good enough expected WOBA and you have good, you know, exit velocity and all this stuff, eventually your, your, um, output will meet that. And I think that this is a real test for that mentality. And I, I, I'm curious what you guys think about that, because I think you guys are, are of that school that says that we should, if we, if we have, have a good process and we know that some of the underlying indicators suggest that that things should turn around that you just need to accumulate enough of a sample size for that to happen Uh, now my question is whether the Yankees a actually do have a good process because I would argue that there are things around and I think we talked about um, this last time that yes they have good hitters that are hitting the ball maybe better than their um, you know raw numbers would suggest but also a, a lot of ways to give back runs around the periphery on the base paths and you know in terms of clutch hitting and in terms of defense certainly uh and 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 so I'm curious what you guys think about this idea of you know when do you start to not trust the process when do you abandon a process that seems like it is just not working uh and and how much evidence do you need before you try to find a new process
2: so let me give you my thoughts and then I'll then I'll quickly turn it over to Adi um as a diehard Yankee fan that, you know, let's just do the math. First of all, you can look long-term. We've won one title in 21 years, right? Um, we've won, we've got 2009. I always forget which one the Phillies won in the Yankees. I think the Yankees won in 09, the Phillies were 08. Um, yeah. How'd, so we you, got, how'd
3: you pick that time span,
2: Eric? Uh, because, well, we won three before, four out of the five before that. <laughs> but I'm saying, in the last Vincent. 21 years, we've won one title. And um, that's one thing. But then also, Neil, I'm, I'm referring to, and I love Adi's thoughts on this, we're almost at the halfway point of the season. At some point, you have to say, this isn't the team that people forecasted with 98-plus wins. And we're probably well beyond that point now where, you know, they'd have to win it like 120-win clip for the rest of the season to get to that number. Um, so to me... I think of the process both in cross year and within year, and I have concerns. But Adi, I, what are your thoughts on this? Well,
0: there's you know, in your article, Neil, you talked about two issues which are statistically very interesting and in the way they affect the Yankees. One is underperformance relative to Pythagoras. So basically, the Pythagorean form says how much, how many runs you give up, how many did you just score, estimate how many wins you have, and when you have a deviation, that is is usually a prediction about the future. So if you if you've under one relative to your Pythagoras, we expect you to regress back if you've over one you go down the yankees just are are just not doing well on that score period the other thing you mentioned is what you called sequencing which is a really much more subtle issue so tell our
2: fans here on war Moneyball what sequencing is and of course neil's here but he can tell us too but go ahead yeah
0: so so neil made the observation about yankees i I should let him make that but i'll just i'll define sequencing think about hitting uh getting um uh let's say a home run uh two singles on a walk And then three strikeouts. Well, that delivers exactly one run. Reverse it and you've got four runs. That's sequencing variation. So it's the same production, but it turns out to a hugely different um, outcome. So what did you, you want to just tell us what you discovered about the Yankees?
1: Yeah, so you're totally right that uh, that there are these fluctuations between how many runs you actually score and how many we would predict you to score based on just knowing you know the proportion of your plate appearances that end in various different events, and that can make a huge difference. And in the Yankees' case, they're the team that has, whether you want to call it luck or clutch hitting or whatever you want to call it, they're the team that has undershot their predicted runs per game the most of any team in baseball so far this year, where you know they're scoring 3.97 runs per game but if you look at uh, a formula that they keep at fan graphs called base runs which predicts how many runs you should score based on those the the proportion of different offensive events that occur they should be scoring 4.37 runs per game which doesn't sound you know maybe it's like oh it's fraction of a run or whatever but it's the biggest shortfall of any team in the league it's also and if 60
2: runs just to do the math if that's 0.4 runs per game times 162 That's 60 runs, and Adi always reminds me. six. That's six wins. All right, well, that's a big number. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, no, that is, and it adds up uh, a lot. And they've also been slightly underperforming in that regard in terms of the flip it around and look at how uh, opponent uh, hitters are doing against their pitchers so if you add it together and if you want to call that luck in terms of sequencing they've been the unluckiest team in the league and it's not even remotely close the second most unlucky team are the twins and they're you know about 0.14 runs per game less unlucky than the than the yankees are so you could look at it that way and say again that's a process uh, versus outcome type of thing right the runs per game the actual scoring is the outcome but the underlying you know s- s- stripping away the sequencing uh, effect number is the process and so that sort of goes in everything about this team i think is sort of like uh they have the talent to be better they have the uh the sequencing independent numbers to have a better record uh and they have you know some of the statcast metrics like the expected weighted on base average and the exit velocity and things like that to be hitting better and yet why are they not hitting better uh and and uh, and, and more broadly why aren't they winning more and that's gets into this question of uh, is, is there something fundamentally flawed about the process that these metrics are not catching?
0: Shane? No. Uh, I, I, want, I want to hear Shane too, but he is lording over us with his baseball Red Sox hat and the three. <laughs> he's like, what, what, what would I do? Um, no, 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 I, I, I want to hear. The Shane, process
1: Shane, is great for, for the Red
0: Sox. Yeah, Shane, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want I want Shane, you know, oh. the process is great, but I've been watching a lot of Yankees baseball And after enough, you know, failures to to deliver runs in the clutch, I'm not a huge believer in the clutch, but I am a believer in pitchers being able to pitch differently in different situations. So is it, there's something about the way the Yankees are constructed, their home run kind of philosophy that makes them susceptible to to the new pitcher who can sort of bear down when the bases are loaded and get a strikeout. And the Yankees just seem not to be delivering runs. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, I mean, actually, that was all on the lines of what I was going to talk about is one thing that you can, beyond sort of just the luck of sequencing and stuff like that, I think fault the Yankees for is I I feel like it is somewhat of a flawed roster construction in the sense that they are very right-handed hitter heavy. I mean, extremely right-handed hitter heavy, which is extra odd given the dimensions of Yankee Stadium that you would construct a lineup in that way. But I think it speaks to maybe kind of some of Audi's uh, what, what I just said in that, the sense that I think they can be e- more easily strategized before whatever compared to other teams. Right. I, I, and I think that that kind of how right-handed heavy they're hitting is plus the fact that once they get on base, there's you know, the fact that they can't kind of manufacture runs or they seem to be, you know, either just slow or inept or whatever, getting runners over or keeping those players on base. I think those two things kind of have combined together to kind of add on to the luck of their under poor underperformance.
2: So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co host today, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, both professors of statistics. And we're here talking to our longtime collaborator and friend, Neil Payne from uh, Senior Writer at 538. So, uh, Neil, I could, of course, talk about the Yankees all day, but you've also written some articles about, for example, the MLB contender Nobody Saw Coming, which I believe is the Seattle Mariners. And you also uh, wrote an article about which MLB teams should be making midseason deals, which is always the question we have at this time of the year. Can you catch our listeners up on uh, those two articles? And then, of course, we have to move on to the NBA because there's a lot going on in the NBA right now. But let's start with the MLB contender nobody saw coming and who should be kind of making deals at this time of year.
1: Well, yeah. The, so you mentioned the Mariners are the team that I think nobody really thought would would be above five hundred at the midseason point. You could look at some other teams that have been frankly surprises, like Shane's Red Sox. I think no no one uh, you know fully expected them to be quite this good, uh, and the San Francisco Giants I think fall into the same category. But both of those teams, at least you know they they have the the underlying talent they have the track record and they have um, frankly the payrolls to be teams that at least you're not surprised by seeing those teams at the top of uh, their respective divisions and thinking like okay well, you know, maybe they, they had uh, been in what appeared to be a rebuilding phase, but they uh, aren't anymore, and that's not s- totally shocking. What is a little bit surprising is that you've got this Mariners team that uh, didn't have any buzz, and, and no one was really thinking about their potential um, to be any good at all uh, going into this season, and yet here they are. They're above 500. and w- one of the things I wanted to dig into was why, but also think about them as a franchise, because Because I do feel like, uh, so they haven't made the playoffs since 2001. That was the year that they uh, won. I believe it was 116 games, uh, and then lost to, of course, the Yankees in the playoffs. Uh, but the that this franchise has had so many near misses of making the playoffs. Uh, you know, potentially making the playoffs over that span and just not making it. In fact, we uh, Rob Arthur, who uh, used to um, work with us at 538, now he's with Baseball Prospectus. He did what I thought was a really interesting story where he looked at, okay, given your record. Uh, what would be the probability we would expect of a team with that record to make the playoffs Uh, just knowing nothing else about, you know, who they were fighting against or whatever in those playoff races. But just in general, if you win 89 games, you should make the playoffs in general, a certain percentage of the time and so on and so forth. And he added that up and came up with this kind of expected number of playoff uh, appearances for each franchise um, going back 20 years or whatever, uh, probably 15 years at the time. And he found that the Mariners had vastly underperformed in terms of playoff appearances, which of course are zero versus expected. You would expect in some of those seasons where they won 90, you know, 92, 89, like, uh, you know, all of these win totals, at least one of those would have been uh, a playoff appearance. Just almost you'd fall backwards into it, you know, even if you weren't uh, necessarily uh, trying. Neil, can and- you do the following?
2: Could you um, walk our listeners through, let's say you come to the realization and this you could. Can- just observe that Seattle's doing much better than maybe it was an expected win total at the beginning of the season. All the different forecasts. How do you start decomposing it? Like, do you just immediately go to the metrics, like the underlying performance metrics, and say, okay, they're doing better on this dimension than the average team? This dimension. How do you try to come up with a statistical story for why it's happening? Like, just if our, like, and by the way, I would assume if I said the same thing to you, like, um, the Atlanta Hawks did better this year than people would expect in the NBA. Maybe you'd make it. The Montreal Canadiens did better in hockey than they would. I, mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. They sure it, did. <laughs> right. No, no. So what I'm saying is like, how do we explain, let's call it positive exceedances? And how do we use the data and the metrics? How do you start to look at that and try to come up with an explanation? Just the process of doing so.
1: That's a great question. Yeah, and uh, just to kind of peek under the hood of my process whenever I'm trying to write about one of these teams is I do sort of start with the building blocks, and I think a lot of this goes back to basically Bill James, right, and thinking about – you know okay well we know that there's a relationship between scoring points or runs or goals and allowing them and how much you win and that is different slightly by sport but it still is like a stable predictable relationship so then you can kind of say okay well that's offense and defense right well first of all there's also the luck uh, aspect to it by looking at the difference between you know the record you would expect based on scoring for and against and what record they actually have and in the case of the Mariners is actually pretty historic uh, in terms of uh, a difference. They've won six more games already uh, uh, than they quote-unquote should have based on their uh, runs scored and allowed. So then you can break it into okay, well, if they have a great offense, then you know that explains some of uh, their performance or do they have a great defense in baseball breaking out the defense between pitching and fielding? And we have ways of doing that that are more advanced now than certainly when Bill James was writing his abstracts in the 1980s. And so so i th- i think of it as being yeah like building blocks and sort of the biggest building block the 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 whole the 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 whole thing i guess is the uh is the team's overall record and then breaking it out into the offensive and defensive and luck uh blocks and then into Sort of more fine grained blocks from there, but I think that's one of the great things about some of the um, the ways that Sabermetrics has approached things over the past you know thirty years or so is that it has been with an eye on basically almost finding like at the molecular level or the you know finding the elements uh, the elemental level and saying like what's the smallest sort of building block that we can kind of drill down into uh, to try to explain you know why a team is successful why a player is successful uh and and hopefully when you add up all of those things it comes to the whole uh, and uh, that that I think is one of the guiding principles that has been baked into sabermetrics, you know, since the very beginning. And maybe you could say, you know, there are examples of teams and maybe the Montreal Canadiens are one, maybe there's a team like the Kansas City Royals from a few years ago, any of these teams that, you know, it's, it's reductive to say this, but like the stats can't explain why they're good. I think there are teams like that. And there, and there is an element of, Maybe, you know, with a good coach and uh, a lot of guys that really seem to have personal accountability to each other and uh, just, you know, when uh, we, we can't fully explain why teams get on roles and exceed expectations through the numbers alone, I think. But I do think that that has been one of the one of the tasks of sabermetrics has been to Neil, find me- these things that add up to the whole.
2: Let me ask you a follow-up question just briefly, and then I want to move to one other aspect of the MLB. And then I promise our fans here on Wharton Moneyball, we are going to get to the NBA. Um, Is it fair to say, although we're a radio show, obviously we're here on Sirius XM 132, the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball. Is it fair to say that you would almost view it like a tree-like model, like we have wins at the top, then we have offense and defense, and then you can break down offense into its metrics and defense into its metrics. This is what you were saying with the granular. In some sense, you could look at it as one big tree where maybe your outcome is wins at the top and you're going to continue to break it down. And if you, know, if you were using a machine learning model, you could literally fit a tree-like model that would see what are the separators. And then you would see where are the cut points. And then you would go as granular as you need to be to get good predictive models. For our listeners out there, is that approximating the process you're describing?
1: Oh, yeah, I think completely. And that's uh, that's kind of an interesting way that they basically, uh, you know, people like Bill James did that but they, they i i assume that he doesn't know anything about uh you know decision trees or machine learning or anything like that uh, you know maybe he does now a little bit more but certainly not in the 1980s but they were able to intuit that and find i always think you know some of these formulas that he came up with like the pythagorean formula like the Runge created formula they're, they're just so different from what anyone was thinking of, and they have stood the test of time that I do think that it's also not surprising that some of his methods for, like you said, building this tree of a team's performance have also been the type of thing that, now, knowing what we do uh, and having more sophisticated methods, we could replicate that, and we probably would find exactly the same sort of bins of, of you know, performances to put into that add up to the whole and predict, I think, especially also that's the biggest. Thing is there would be no value to any of this stuff if you couldn't add it up and say well this guy was worth this many wins his fielding was worth this many wins and you know kind of add up everything and say okay well I know how good all the component parts are but how good is the team you can actually get really close to predicting how good a team is going to be if you knew nothing except how you know effective all the component parts are.
0: I'm going to to jump in because what what makes that work in baseball is an additive model. So you add up all those portions, and in fact, the the decision tree that that uh, Eric was describing is actually the exact opposite of an additive model. Um, so what you really because what's happening is is that yep. you you drill, drill down to the location, and then you can go in either direction. And 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 if you, and in baseball, the additive model really does work on a season level. It works. Um, it works on a team level, and it, you can add up the defense and the pitching and the base running and, the, and all that together, and you get a pretty good approximation. And that's why Pythagoras works over a season really nicely, you Take just run, score, runs scored, runs allowed, and bang, you get a pretty good approximation of the number of wins. Um, what, where it doesn't necessarily work is when you try to think about m- um, moving players to different teams, and and doing things on an individual level, because a home run hitter will add a different amount to a different team, depending on who's surrounding them. In baseball, it's not that much, but in in other sports, it's just monstrous. Um, And that, I think, is the next generation of what we're going to be seeing in Sabermetrics, um, is trying to figure out how collections of players kind of work together. And this is the holy grail for football and basketball. Um, Baseball, we've really never worried about it that much,
2: I think we may have lost Audi for just a second there. So Shane, I know you wanted to. Adjust.
3: Well, I'll just point out that as what Audie, uh, part of what Audie was saying, I think, is that like you know the one, p- the other part that's kind of intriguing to me is it, it, that kind of goes away from that additive model is when you start talking about like kind of instead of talking about outcome in terms of runs scored and runs allowed, which are themselves components of winning, when you start talking about making the playoffs, some of these outcomes right. that are at the team and season level but aren't necessarily. um you know, you know, going to be a direct kind of additive function of runs scored and runs allowed. I mean, this, this 10, you know, wins to every, you know, 10 runs, to every win is kind of an additive approximation, uh, for every win. But like, as far as taking a team into the playoffs, I think that's where at the margins of the, where, where these teams are and how you're constructing rosters i think that's where you kind of can differ from the additive model a lot like a particularly complementary player can come in and have kind of a non you know a, a greater than additive expected contribution to making the playoffs
1: And just ask the Mariners about that, bringing it all the way back full circle there, you know, maybe they could have used one of those um, players that, that instead of winning 89 games and missing the playoffs, get, get 90 wins and make the playoffs. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, those are like nonlinear effects, right? Where uh, the, the benefit of one extra win, when you're moving from 80 to 81 is like nothing in terms of playoff probability, but when you're moving from 89 to 90, it could mean everything.
3: Right. Yeah. Or, or I mean, look at the Phillies this year, who are another team I'm following. They just, I think they just blew their 21st save of the season. Correct. Yeah. Is that right? What else? Is and I mean,
2: new? <laughs> you know, I, right. No, no, I mean, then... no, no, no. Let's be clear. What they've blown, by the way. And then, I want to move on. Let's be clear. They've lost 21 games where they held the lead during the game. They haven't blown 21. But let me just tell you. Um. Give Hector Neris enough time, and he will blow twenty-one saves <laughs> by the season. So let's give him. It's only half the season, Shane. Let's give Neris time to blow the rest of the games.
3: I thought I'd read somewhere that they would blown seven uh, games in the last uh, seven, seven leads in the last six games. They. have well they can't well
2: yeah. maybe they've taken the lead seven, more seven, no they've blown more. seven saves in the last six no no no. Saves, that's which tough. is even more they insane. have i mean i can I, i'll be happy to tell you every one of neris's pitches and at bats in the last two weeks and it's not been good <laughs> so neil we have about 80 topics left in just a few about 10 minutes so i what i want to do is i want to say a topic and i just really want a 30 second answers i want to kind of do a rapid fire round with you and see how you react to each but let's stay with baseball first sticky stuff in baseball spin rates what's its impact
1: well we're seeing an impact already in terms of the spin rate for the league it's way down or oh, just since they started cracking down it would be it went from being the highest of the statcast era since 2015 uh to being the second lowest it's the same roughly league-wide spin rate as it was in 2016 and that's just over the past 2 weeks
2: okay so are you expecting, by the way, follow up to that. Are you expecting batting averages, of course, therefore to go up? And are you expecting we're not going to maybe be the lowest historical batting average season maybe in the history of baseball?
1: Well, I'm expecting them to go up anyway, because we're the temperatures are rising. We're going in the summer. You just see that pattern anyway. Um, so it's going to be a little difficult to untangle that. I'm also expecting walks to go up. So I think it's interesting to see. I'll keep an eye on whether, yes, strikeouts might go down. But are you trading one true outcome for another?
2: Okay. Let's, let's continue on now, maybe to the uh, NBA. So um, Sixers and Ben Simmons, where do we go? Or is it, or, uh, or is
0: it Embiid who's the problem?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I, you can add that. Well, then now I have to give Neil a minute, but I don't mind. He can talk about Simmons, Embiid, and what do we do? I,
1: I, I wish I knew the answer. I wish, um, you know, if anybody does know the answer, it's probably Daryl Morey, but I think it's, uh, they, they're in a really tough spot, which is funny to say about a team that had such a great season as they had but I do feel like there are things that about Simmons that are kind of incompatible with being in the role that he is you know that they're asking of him to be on a championship type team and that he would probably have more success in a different role somewhere else how you make that work with his contract is one of the big things that Daryl Morey is going to have to figure out
2: yeah, it, I have to admit it. When you talked about trust the process early on and, and in one of your articles regarding the Yankees, it reminded me of um, Andre Iguodala in the following sense when he was with the Sixers. You were just asking him to be the best player on the team and to be the number one scorer. And as we saw for the Warriors, he's none of those things. And I have a feeling you're asking Ben Simmons to be the second scorer on the team, maybe the third after Harris, and he's none of those things. In other words, he if you asked him to do what he does great, He can be the best in the league at it, but the Sixers by construction are asking him to do things. He's not capable. Like they want him to put up 15 points a game to, and that's just not going to be Ben Simmons. It's just not. Um, Let's talk about something else. Um, Now that we have the Hawks and the Suns, both in the playoffs, I'll just give, we're doing quick word association again with Neil Payne, senior writer at five thirty eight. Trey young.
1: Amazing. Uh, that's all I can say is uh, he, he's been the, the heart and soul of the team, I think, also.
2: Do you have concerns? Because um, I'm pretty sure he and I are the same height. And I'm sure even if we are <laughs> that I weigh more than him.
1: Can, can you am, shoot can, like him, though?
2: I didn't say that, but I said I can I can eat more than him. So <laughs> I think so. I weigh more than him. Do you have any concerns about his durability over the long run?
1: I mean, maybe, but I think we're seeing a league that is more predicated on players that look like him than players that you would consider to be, you know, bigger and bulkier and more uh, durable.
2: How about um, if if I asked you now? This is a, a my sons have asked me this question. If you had to redo the, I think it's 2018, maybe it's the 2019 draft, would you take DeAndre Ayton or Trey Young?
1: I would take Trey Young. Now, I thought you were going to ask me, would you uh, w- would you trade Luca for Trey? And that, I think, is a fascinating uh, trade. I thought it was at the time, and it's only become more fascinating ever since. Yeah,
2: just so all our listeners know, they were involved in the trade. I mean, that was the trade where the Dallas Mavericks traded up to get Luka Doncic, and uh, the Hawks ended up getting Trey Young, in this case, and obviously other capital. Um, let me just say, by the way, right now, because I, I was at the Clippers-Suns game the other night, and, the, and let me just tell you something. DeAndre Ayton is no joke. This guy can really play basketball. And now you're already looking at a draft. You'll remind me, Neil, who the other players were, but you're now looking at a draft with Ayton, Doncic, Trey Young. I mean, and maybe there are others. Uh, This was a very good draft class.
1: Oh yeah. And, and it's funny because I don't know that there was like a huge amount of buzz around it. I think at the time people were like, Oh, Ayton's the number one pick almost like by default, but you know, they, we're, we're not sure how many other stars are going to come out of it. And yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't think people really appreciated how good Luca was going to be. I don't think they appreciated how good Trey young was going to be. Uh, we've also seen other players that are like good players like Michael Bridges uh, came in that draft, Mitchell Robinson uh, on the Knicks, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, uh, Michael Porter uh, on the Nuggets. So, I would take any s- of those
2: players you just mentioned on the Sixers.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they would too.
2: So where do you see the NBA playoffs right now? Obviously, um, I got home late last night to turn on the Suns-Clippers game. Um, I saw that obviously a disaster. I mean, the Suns won, but it was one of the worst basketball games I've ever been to. I think the final score was 84-81 the other night. I, I could not yeah. believe my son and I were there saying, um, is this 15 or just 14 missed shots in a row by both teams? <laughs> but regardless, the Suns had the opportunity, obviously, to close out the series at home. They're now going back to L.A. for game six. How, let's start with the Western Conference. How do you see that? How confident? Do, well, what probability would you give the Suns right now to win this series?
1: Well our model gives them an 81% chance. I'm I think that might be a little bit high but again Anytime you're in those situations where you only have to win one and they have to win two and one of those two that they have to win is uh, on the road, it it does kind of add up to be in that range. I, I think that what the Clippers have done without Kawhi Leonard is pretty remarkable. Paul George has really risen to the occasion. Uh, I still think that the Suns will win this series, though. But um, it's just I think it's a shame that um, Kawhi and he's just the latest of of many injuries in these playoffs that we've seen for stars that he's not uh you know they're not going to be at full strength I'd be shocked if he came back at all even if they win this series and played in the finals and like I, I don't know it's it's kind of robbing us of uh seeing Kawhi Leonard in his element uh in in the late stages of the playoffs but the Clippers have done you know a yeoman's job of just hanging in there even without him I think Just
2: for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, just what Neil's talking about, let's just say both teams had a 50% chance of winning each game. The reason Neil's saying 81% is a little high, but maybe not too high, most people get, well, what's the baseline? Well, the baseline is the only way the Suns can lose is loss loss if each one had a probability of 0.5 there's a 25% chance so they should be at a baseline 75 25 but you're mentioning number 1 there's some evidence maybe they're the better team because they had a better regular season and they're up and they're up 3-2 and they have home court so 81-19 people are like oh my god that's terribly high it's not that different than 75-25 I just want to give our listeners a way to norm that you know most people would say well 60-40 well the baseline 75 just at 50-50 so yeah that's
0: a great point give our listeners
2: a norm how about the Eastern Conference obviously the Bucks lost game 1 at home but now appear to be the dominant Bucks we were all expecting are up 2-1 and Trey Young appears to be banged up how do you see that going
1: yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, the Bucs should pretty clearly be favored to win from here on. And it hurts me to say that because, again, like you said, I, I work for the Hawks. I grew up in Atlanta. I am uh, just have loved to see this run that this team is on. I think if Trey is uh, less than 100%, though, it really, I mean, they're already up against, I think, a really tough Bucks team that maybe we forgot about a little or didn't give enough credit to as um, being as, as as good as they are. Uh, but yeah, even with Giannis taking so long to, to shoot the. His free throws not making his free throws or, or whatever we saw i think chris middleton uh it, it the bucks are a very interesting team because and we we had a story on this that their best player is not necessarily their fourth quarter closer and we saw a little bit of that in the game uh the other day and we've seen that throughout the playoffs really chris middleton is their go-to guy when they need a bucket late in the game in the fourth quarter of a close game they go to him which usually that that's uh, totally different than the majority of teams that have a star on the same caliber uh, as Giannis. You, uh, you,
2: I know you listen to Wart Moneyball. Remember the Bradlow theory, when your best <laughs> player is your center, you can't win close games unless you have another player that can close it down. You can't get the ball to Giannis enough. Once they pressure you in the back court, they throw it into the post. There's not enough time. You've got to have someone, and that's why the Sixers were hoping Tobias Harris would be that player or In past years, Jimmy Butler was that player. It can't be Joel Embiid. And you know Simmons doesn't shoot the ball. That's why by construction, Embiid can have 35 points in the first three quarters and score two in the fourth. You're exactly saying what I've been saying all along.
1: And that's what I love about the way the Bucks are constructed is that they do they they knew that I think they sort of whether it was explicitly they they sat down and worked that out or just through you know implicitly the way that they built the team they they tailored the supporting cast of this team to Giannis in a way that makes him better than you know his impact becomes greater. Talking about those ways in which players can kind of uh, you know multiply their advantages, I think that we're seeing that show up in the in the build of this box team especially when they added drew holiday i think that's also another kind of really unheralded huge um addition that they made
2: since we may not have you on neil before the nba playoffs are over um it sounds like you're predicting bucks versus Suns in the finals who do you like in that series any quick prediction
1: I like the Bucks in that, but I, I think I'm going against our model, which thinks that the Suns uh, would w- at least they have a higher probability of winning the finals, and it actually thinks the Bucks are more favored to to make the finals uh, in there. So there's um uh it, it, you would think the Suns conditional on making the finals would would have a bigger edge in terms of our model, but I think the Bucks um are, it's it's their time. I'm going against the model, which is never a, a smart thing to do, but you know it keeps things fun sometimes. Well, Neil, it
2: makes it even scarier to think. That the um, it took the Bucks game seven and a big toe by uh, uh, Kevin Durant, as they say, to even yeah. beat the one and a half legged Nets. Um, and imagine if the Nets had all three of their players, we might be talking about the Nets winning the NBA fund.
1: Oh, I think we completely would. I mean, on paper, I, I think in, in, uh, no team at full strength is as scary as the Nets were this season. But again, that's the that's the rub of especially these playoffs uh, is that, uh, you know, few teams have been at full strength. The Bucs are one of those teams, I think, if. For the most part, yep. depending on how you think of Dante Divincenzo, uh, but you know the 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 Nets never really—I I don't think they ever were at full strength. Never. That's going to be games. one of the big. I think it was six games they played together. Yeah, and that's going to be the big one of the big what ifs, especially if if they're not able to keep them together going forward, or things you know they never are able to kind of achieve that potential. Is what if this core had been healthy? Because I do think that they were the best team in the league if they had been healthy.
2: Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Neil is one of the long friends of the show. He's a senior writer at 5:38. Uh, please continue to follow him, Neil. Thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball.
1: Thank you for having me. It's, it's great, as always. So this
2: has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my co-host, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner. Um, on behalf of our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer and engineer, Dion Simpkins, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, we're here on podcast Sirius XM 132 every week recording uh, between now and next week. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your analytics. Lot to be excited about in sports. We'll see you next time here on Morton Moneyball.
0: Wharton Moneyball. There's something called the large deviations distribution. The basic idea is that you want to ask yourself, what causes unusually unlikely events, and how does that happen, and what's the distribution on the individual components that make it up? And basically, there's two alternatives. Either one unbelievably unlucky thing happens, or lots and lots of little things. And it turns out in the theory of large deviations that it's the latter. Lots and lots of little things that break your way create the large deviation.
1: Wharton Moneyball.
0: Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio.